that that's part of the trauma that was the religious trauma that was implanted in my brain. And it's always, what if you're wrong? God's going to get you. And only, only, only in the church have we created such a high price for being wrong about something is eternal damnation and hell. Mm. And maybe I am wrong. Maybe I'm wrong about myself. Maybe I'm wrong about deconstructing theology. Maybe I'm wrong about a lot of things. And I'm sure we we are all going to be wrong about some things in eternity. Mm-hmm. But the price of being wrong, the stakes are so high in the church, the price of being wrong is being burned to death forever. Yeah. Now, that way, no one questions anything. Yeah. And we keep people in line. And so that to me, I have to just face that fear and let it go. Welcome back to the What If Project podcast. My name is Glenn, and uh, this is episode number 116, and it's part number three of our series, To Hell with Hell. Part number one, we had N.T. Wright. Part number two, we had Brian McLaren. Part number three, drumroll please, the one and the only Jennifer Mayo. If you hit pause, go back to June for our Pride series. Uh, Jennifer came on and told us her story. Uh, it's a beautiful story, so I, I would highly recommend that you listen to that episode, if you can, and then listen to this one, because it will give you a lot of context for what she shares and uh, some of her, her experiences. Uh, Jennifer is quickly becoming one of my favorite uh, people, one of my favorite voices in the online circles that I travel. Uh, she has some really great commentary and thoughts about God and faith and spirituality and and all the things. So go and look her up. Uh, befriend her on Facebook. She will definitely uh, accept your request, I'm sure. And uh, just listen to her, learn from her. Really, really good stuff uh, coming up in this episode. We go deep. We talk about the doctrine of hell as a form of spiritual abuse that often leaves people traumatized. So uh, buckle up and <laughs> get ready. Uh, this series is being sponsored by my friends at BeADisciple.com. Uh, here at the What If Project, we don't shy away from tough questions. We're doing eight parts of this series on hell. Uh, we talk about LGBTQ, talk about racial reconciliation. We talk about the atonement. We talk about all the things here on the podcast. And I think that's important, you know, because, I mean, I think questions, I think exploration evolution is a sign of, of growth. Like it's it's easy to just kind of plant ourselves and our ideas and declare that I will never budge. You know, this is what I believe and that's the end of it. But I don't think that's necessarily a symbol 
of mature faith. I think maturity comes when we embrace questions, we explore doubts, we recognize that, hey, maybe there's more to know. And that's why I love BeDisciple.com. They're a, a hub of sorts for all of your spiritual questions, spiritual quandaries, and they're just a click away. Uh, BeDisciple.com. So head over there, uh, scroll through some of their classes. You'll find that they're affordable, uh, they're ecumenical, they're credited, and they're all short-term, 100% online from the comfort of your own your own home. And they're all taught by experts, uh, content experts. Like They don't just pick random people, bloggers, podcasters, whatever off the internet to teach these classes, but... The classes are taught by professionals and experts in that field, uh, and the classes all take place in the company of others uh, who are also asking questions, so you're safe to ask your questions and hopefully together discover some some answers. So if you have any questions about that, uh, if that piques your interest at all, uh, enroll in a course, head over to BeDisciple.com and uh, shoot them an email. Secondly, we have a newsletter now at The What If Project. Uh, I call it The What If Project After Party. Uh, why? Because it takes place um, at the end of the week on Friday morning. And uh, basically, I look back over that week's podcast episode and I provide you some, I don't know, some like an inside look, some behind the scenes commentary. Uh, What was I thinking when I was talking to this person? Why did I ask that question? Why didn't I ask that question? Why do I, what question do I wish I would have asked them if I could go back now? Uh, What's my relationship with this person like outside? of the podcast? Was I nervous? What did I learn? Did it challenge me? Did I agree? Did I not agree? All different sorts of things. Head over uh, to the show notes and uh, you click on the newsletter link and it will take you there so you can sign up. Patreon, patreon.com slash whatifproject is a place where you can go to support the show financially. So anywhere from $3 a month up to $20 a month, every tier gets a reward. Uh, The Heretic Shop is a place to buy t-shirts, hoodies, falls coming, pick up a hoodie. Uh, maybe get a coffee mug for your hot coffee or your hot tea, stickers, backpacks, track jackets, all the things. Uh, put the link to that in the show notes as well with Patreon and the newsletter. And lastly, special music today is from my friend Will Rutherford. Uh, head over to Spotify, Apple Music, type in Will Rutherford. He's making some beautiful music. Uh, download it, share it, pass it around, tell your friends, blast it from your speakers. Uh, Will Rutherford. So all that to say, without any further ado, as they say, uh, this is part number three of our series, To Hell With Hell, episode 116, and it's my conversation with the one and the only Jennifer Mayo. Enjoy. When you've been cast out, when you are filled with doubt, there is hope pain that carries the weight of shame there's a place Hey friends, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, Today we're sitting down with repeat guest Jennifer Mayo, who was on the podcast for our Pride series uh, back in June. And was it the Pride series, Jennifer, or was it the... It was. It was the Pride series. It was the Pride series. That's right. So this is your your third time then. First, second. No, wait. Second time. Second time. Yes. Man, what are we doing? Who knows? It's (laughs) quarantine brain. 
I don't know we're what's going on. We're trying to stay sane is what we're doing. When we, are we are trying to stay, to stay sane. sane. Well, today she's joining us to talk about the topic of hell. And from what I understand, uh, she has a lot to say. So Jennifer, whether it's the second, third, fifth time, whatever it is, welcome back to the podcast. <laughs> Thank you, Glenn. So delighted to be here with y'all. Thank you. So for our listeners, if you want to hear more of Jennifer's story, uh, head back a bunch of episodes. And she talks all about her her story and her journey and all those things. But for now, Jennifer, uh, what have you been up to since the last time we talked? Well, you know, I think like, wow, I'm trying to forget so much has happened in our world, I guess, since the last just time we visited. Things, right? <laughs> just a <laughs> couple goodness. of things. Holy smokes. <laughs> a few little things. Um, the world is on fire. And um, so like most of us, I've just been trying to survive working from home and just uh, trying to keep my head above water and just um, trying to participate in you know, different. I've been to several protests in Nashville and Murfreesboro and um, almost been tear gassed a few times. So mm. that was uh, an eye opening thing. But mm. uh, but I will say, you know, I, I really feel in this and, and I don't know if you have sensed this either with all of the um, Black Lives Matter stuff. I think overall, I just feel like this is a divine season of healing and exposure and really the word apocalypse, as you know, literally means an unveiling or an mm. unmasking. Yeah. And um, I feel like so many things are being unmasked and revealed for what they are right now. Um, not just with issues of white supremacy and racism, but in our own lives as yeah. well. And yeah. I do think there's a, a grace here for all of us to experience freedom in certain things. And so mm -hmm. while this has been just an awful time with this virus, I've experienced um, some good healing as well. So I'm not going to get into all that, but just wanted to throw that out there as well. So yeah, it's not all been bad. <laughs> yeah. I feel like there's, so, like you said, there's so much going on, but at the same time, I feel like it's, it is in a sense, a divine moment in the sense that we have an opportunity to really grasp something, I think, to move the world forward. And I think it's Absolutely. important. I think it's important that people tap into the prophetic spirit that lies within all of us, and mm -hmm. uh, use our voices to to move to move things forward in a good way. Sure. So uh, let me start off um, by asking you you this because we're gonna talk about hell, and I figure we'll mm -hmm. just sort of springboard from here and just see uh, where the conversation goes. Now, I know this is a big question, but to narrow it down a little bit. Let's say that you were still pastoring a church and uh, someone in your congregation says, uh, pastor, I need to go out for coffee, ask you some questions. You get to Starbucks, whatever it is you go, uh, you sit down, they say, you know what? I am so stressed over like the topic of hell, over all sure. I've heard about torture, separation from God, fire, darkness, devils, all the things. Help me understand, like, what is this all about? Like, wh where, where would you, where would you, as the pastor today, like, where you are in your life now, like, what would you say? Where would you begin with this person? Oh wow, you know, it's such a contrast of where we, where I am today, and where I used to be. Um, you know, I, I think one thing we need to say up front, when, when I knew I was going to be talking about this with you, I just posted on Facebook. I said. I'm going to be talking to my friend Glenn uh, in a few weeks about the topic of hell. Mm -hmm. um, is there anything you would like for me to talk about or address 
or you have any questions. And, that's you know, a, that's a dangerous question off the bat. <laughs> it, it was super open. You know, I just threw it out there. Sure. And I had one person that just messaged me and said, you know, I asked my pastor about this a while back. And I, told, I said, what if you are wrong about mm. health? What if the church has been wrong about health? And I said, well, what was his response? And she said, he looked me in the eye and said, we might as well just shut down the church. Hmm. Now, I want our listeners to, to sit with that a minute. You know, obviously, this is no small subject we're dealing with. It's so big that if this concept of eternal torture and eternal damnation did not exist, we may as not even well meet. We just have brunch on Sunday and call it a day or something. Mm. Um, so this is a huge issue. And um, so I, I just kind of want to, if you don't mind, because so many of us have different concepts of hell. What are we talking about when we say hell? Yeah. You know, what, what, let's, let's sort of define this thing. And as you said, uh, hell classically in our Western mindset has been this physical place, a literal physical place of eternal conscious torment and separation of God. That's right. Yeah. And of course, we wonder why would such a place exist? Hmm. And the reason theologically that the church has always given is that only perfection can stand in God's presence. Mm. Have you ever heard that? All the time. That, <laughs> exactly. Yep. That because God is so holy and perfect and righteous that only holy and perfect and righteous people can stand in his presence for eternity. Yeah. And God is also bound by a law higher than himself and higher than the law of love mm. to judge us for our sins. So because God is holy and perfect, he judges us, and we all deserve hell, but the way out is to accept Jesus' sacrifice, perfect sacrifice for us on the cross. Mm. And the whole mission of the church has been been framed within this, this concept. Mm. So, I mean, that obviously has so many logical problems. Um, you know, number one, it to me at least, it makes the, this whole, it does tie into the idea of substitutionary atonement, that somehow it makes uh, God, the father, a divine child abuser, basically. Mm. That somehow he has to kill his own child in order to do what we do every day, yeah. forgive people for wrongs done to us. And um, so this is a big thing. And so what would I say now if someone came to me and asked me about hell, and, and I sort of feel like I'm going through a, a second deconstruction, and I don't know if we ever finish, or it's like a rabbit hole that we sort of go down, and it does feel that way, doesn't it? Yeah. And I'm sort of okay, Glenn, with living in mystery, and not having all of the answers, hmm. like to so many things, and I, I would tell the person if they came to me and said, well, what's going to happen to me? Am I going to burn in flames because of whatever? Uh, I, I would say I don't totally know what's going to happen to us when we die, and I'm okay with that. But I do know one thing, that I firmly, firmly believe that we came from a place of perfection, of love, and beauty, 
and that somehow we are all destined for that place again yeah. of love, perfection, and beauty, and that 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 is that that is a journey for all of us. And you know, I used to think that that whatever hell was or heaven was, it was a physical, literal, static, fixed place that my destiny was totally decided in this fixed state once I died or breathed my last breath. So I sort of view it as like we're we're gonna be on an eternal journey with God after we die. You know? that uh that we're journeying to the heart of God and to love and to to a deeper sense of love and um that journey will take us uh it's infinite it's it's never ending and it's going to be a beautiful journey for us mm. so i don't have really any answers but i know one thing the scriptures say that perfect love casts out all fear and I have so much hung onto that verse lately. And if there's any doctrine or any belief that the church has had that has literally struck fear in the hearts of people, it's this one, this doctrine of hell. And so I, I really can't reconcile this idea of a perfect loving God in this concept of 99% of people um, who do not think like we do, believe like we do, or haven't heard the true gospel burning forever. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, to me, the church throughout for 2,000 years has fired the furnaces of hell up so hot to keep people in line, basically, mm. and um, to keep us from straying too far off the beaten path. But But that's sort of what I would say. I like that. I think what you said about it not being not being a destination, but it's about, it's about the journey. And I think that's what we lose sight of so much when we talk about, you know, the afterlife, like what happens when you die. And I think when mm -hmm. we focus so much on that, I think we lose sight of what Jesus was all about. I mean, they were, Christians were called followers of the way, right? I mean, they were, because the way was a journey. It was a way of life. And I think that when we make, yeah. we make hell out to be a destination, as opposed to something we can either create or disperse, like get rid of today in the here and the now, mm -hmm. I think we really lose sight of what the mission of Jesus was, was all about. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, really, I, I think we're seeing today what happens in a theology when we are so focused on eternity in the afterlife yeah. that we literally allow hell to be created on earth. And we are today live a uh, living living in a literal hell on earth yeah it feels that way to me at least, yeah you know? yeah it does. especially when you have like i mean you have big big name people i mean like look at like you know like like a franklin graham for instance i mean mm -hmm. you know constantly talking about like the end and constantly talking about you know heaven and hell and i think that it's figures like that that although they might pepper into their you know, their messages, uh, things about today and making a difference today. Like primarily it's all about later and who's in and who's out. And it just creates so much division. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. I think too, like what you said, think about this this morning, think about like our conversation and the thing that struck me was, you know, the church has made such a big thing about hell. And this is like a new idea for me. So I'm kind of piecing this together mm -hmm. as we're talking, but church has made such a big thing about hell 
and about where people go when they die. And if you think about it, like if it's, if it's true that you have to believe like the right things about Jesus and God or whatever, like say the sinner's prayer, do all the things to go to heaven and to escape hell. I mean that the majority of the people who are going to heaven are going to heaven because of the geographical location that they were born in. Right. Because like mm-hmm. people who are born in a, whether it's like a place where the church is very prominent, especially like the, the U S where there's a, in many places, there's a church in every street corner, like especially down here in the South, like everywhere you go, there's another church. And it's like, so there's a much greater chance that somebody is going to fall into that chosen category where they're going to be able to say their prayer and go to heaven than someone in a remote place. And let's say, somewhere in Africa, right? I mean, like, it's just like, right. it's, it doesn't make any sense. Like, wouldn't, if that was the case, like, wouldn't God make sure that the quote chosen people were scattered all over the earth as opposed to honing around a certain sure. location? Yeah. And you, I think you're spot on, Glenn. And I've been thinking about this a lot lately uh, because as I said, I've been through a lot of healing lately. And I, I think that all fundamentalism brings with it a certain amount of trauma. Mm. And, you know, I, I just want to throw this out. Imagine a child um, uh, in first, second grade being told that all of her friends are going to hell. Mm. And, uh, you know, no matter how good they are, no matter how nice they are, if they haven't, said the sinner's prayer or believed a certain doctrine about faith alone and Christ alone or, or what, whatever it is, or baptized a certain way or uh, join our church or whatever, that they are going to be consciously and eternally separated from God and tormented. This is what we're telling kids from the age of whenever we bring them into the church. Yeah. And it's your job to invite your friends to church so we can save them and fix them. Mm. Now, I don't know about you, but I have got to believe that that imparts some type of trauma within the brain, the developing brain of a child that grows within us over adolescence and adulthood and eventually manifests itself in different ways in our lives spiritually and emotionally as we grow. Yeah. And actually that was a question I was going to ask you is, do you think that the doctrine of hell can be a form of abuse? 100%. No question. I definitely think so. Like I was even, (laughs) yeah, like I was trying to recall even my own, I've talked about it a little bit on, on the podcast before, but like my own upbringing being in a private Christian school and like the, the teachings of hell were just hammered into us. And like, I can remember just the, intense amount of pressure I felt as a as a young child like as early as the fifth fifth grade like thinking it's my responsibility to evangelize my parents like I already had like separation anxiety type things going on so like the the idea Uh of me like let's just say like something happened our house blew up in the middle of the night and I'm five I'm in the fifth grade and I'm gonna go to heaven but because I didn't convince my parents to say the sinner's prayer or maybe they're not believing the right things because I wasn't brave enough to, to tell them they're going to go to hell. And somehow I'm supposed to be enjoying my time. Like it just created such a crisis in my brain. It but does. I was, but it, I was always it, it, told you just got to have faith. 
God is sovereign yeah. and it's good. But like, exactly. yeah, like I can remember crying myself to sleep at night, like having nightmares. Oh my God. Yeah. I'm sure you're not the only one, Glenn. I'm sure yeah. many of our listeners have had totally relatable and similar experiences. This is what I'm saying. It, the doctrine itself is traumatizing. Yeah. And the more we're learning about the brain on trauma, we see that trauma actually rewires our brains. And uh, the good news is that put, the, putting ourselves in a healing environment, the brain will naturally heal itself. Mm. So there is hope for recovering fundamentalists. <laughs> right. <laughs> like exactly. us. We, exactly. can, we can heal. <laughs> we can. We can. The, yeah. the brain is moldable, right? Or whatever that word Absolutely. is, Matt Malleable. Yeah. Yeah. Moldable. Moldable. That's it. <laughs> so you said that um, obviously you and I come from similar backgrounds, mm-hmm. but you had said that a little bit earlier that your your thoughts on hell have obviously changed. And so I'm curious yeah. as to like what was the 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 trigger point to like the turning point, I should say, to, for your, your thoughts to shift? <sighs> I would say there were, there were two things. Um, one, it began, um, <clears throat> I've kind of had uh, the privilege of being part of several parts, streams of the church. And um, I spent several years in an Eastern Orthodox church. Mm. And um, if any of our uh, listeners are familiar with the Orthodox Church, it's, it's very liturgical, and it comes from an older theological stream than the Western Church and Roman Catholicism. And mm. there was a great schism in the year 1054 where the East and West split, but uh, won't get into that. But, you know, we tend to think, Glenn, that what we believe today and the church would have you believe that it's just been passed down in purity from the apostles from generation to generation to generation. Mm. And everything we believe can be traced back to the earliest days of the church. And we've had this purity of doctrine and all this stuff. And, and that wasn't quite it. And I just want to read a quote from Augustine, um, mm. the, basically the father of Western theology. He's talking about this concept of health. And this is what he had to say. It is quite in vain then that some indeed very many yield to merely human feelings and deplore the notion of eternal punishment of the damned in their perpetual misery in hell. Mm. So here we have the father of all Western theology lamenting the fact that in his time, in, in the fifth century, late fourth century, that uh, that there were a lot of people, in fact, uh, maybe a large statistical number in the church doubting the eternal torment of souls forever in hell. So rather than this concept of hell being this monolithic thing that we've always believed in, it was not so, uh, so clear cut in the earliest days of the church. Mm. Um, but, but that was sort of, sort of overwhelmed. And, and I just want to point out this in, in Eastern theology, there's a very different concept, uh, of hell, uh, than in the West where we believe this is, uh, so we sort of have this view of God as judge and he's going to judge us for our sins. Um, there's kind of a different concept in the East that, that I sort of like, and it's, mm. 
I, I'll just kind of throw it out there, uh, and we can talk about it. Um, that love, that God is love. God cannot do anything other than love. Mm. Love his enemies, love those who crucified him, love those who mistreated him, and love those who loved him. Mm. Love him. And so love is giving equally to all, regardless of belief, regardless of doctrine, regardless of whatever life. Hmm. And heaven and hell are not physical places. They are states of the soul. Hmm. They're not externally imposed. We self-create them within ourselves. Hmm. And, you know, Jesus pretty much said as much. He said the kingdom of heaven is what? Within, within you. you. Yeah. And so I would assume the corollary would be true. The kingdom of hell can also be within us. Interesting. And so, yeah, it, it kind of is interesting and it to chew on this. And um, so the state of our own soul and heart determines how we interact with divine agape and, and love in the future. Hmm. And so these are not final, fixed and final states. They're stages of growth, of healing and transition. And uh, change is inevitable. Hmm. And growth is inevitable in the future. Um, and I also believe that, that, like with all growth, that there is pain involved in growth, right? Mm. And so, but this is not the same as punishment and torment. And I think what, if there is any type of pain in the next life that we experience, it's not the pain of being tortured and tormented by God. It's simply the pain of letting go. Mm. And the pain of growth, the pain of journey, the pain involved in an eternal transformation into healing in our journey to love. Mm. So that is sort of the view of hell in the East, which obviously is very different. And a lot different. <laughs> a lot different. Yeah, right. And, you know, we can see historically how, well, okay, how the church thought. Well, okay, if we're all on a journey and we're, we're progressing, then maybe there's something we can do on earth to help people that are on this journey. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> you see where I'm going with this? Yeah. So, so here's where the ideas of purgatory, indulgences, praying to the saints, and venerating relics to, to uh, giving alms for people who have died, that this whole theology that developed that the Reformation reacted against, you can kind of see where it came from. Hmm. Maybe good intentions, but sort of bad development yeah. is, is what I'll say. Hmm. That, that so makes me I'm feel... I'm going to stop and let you talk. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to say that makes me feel a lot better because uh, this, this is kind of a... a I guess I would say a personal issue for me just because mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of the pushback that I get whenever I post something about hell that's outside of what might be considered the norm in mm -hmm. Western evangelicalism is, well, you're moving away from orthodoxy. Like I remember about a year ago, I, ha I posted something and I got a message from uh, a prominent figure in the seminary that I went to who I've known for like 20 right. years. And he said, you know, you're really concerning me because you're moving away from Orthodox Christianity. And I didn't really have as much of the 
tools in my tool belt as I do now a year later. Mm -hmm. But I remember I, I wrote back and I said like, I really don't think I am. Like I really think that some of the things that I'm sharing about hell and the realizations I'm coming to are actually much more orthodox than the things that I've been raised with uh, in the evangelical church. Like it just like these things like about eternal torture and stuff like that are relatively newer ideas than what you just explained to us. Is that what you say? That's correct. Absolutely. I think there was, you know, there were several uh, historically, you know, sort of theological centers that developed in the early church, Mm. Um, places of learning, places of sort of where, where there were, I guess, what we would call seminaries and centers of uh, what became patriarchal seats later. Uh, One in Jerusalem, one in Antioch, one in Alexandria, and one in Rome. Hmm. And so these were centers of learning and education and theological development for the church. And they, uh, you know, they all work together. Uh, you know, it, it, we have a hard time believing, but, you know, Jerusalem couldn't email Rome and get an answer. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right. so, so there was this distance thing back then. But, um, <laughs> You know, and and Rome, that that whole Western theology took on a more juridical thing, where God is seen primarily as a judge who is required to judge sin. Hmm. In the in the other uh, seats of learning uh, or centers of Christianity, uh, God was seen not so much as a judge, but is the great physician, a hmm. healer. Hmm. And the church was seen as a hospital. Hmm. So in eternity, we don't meet a judge. We meet, we, we meet a physician. Hmm. And whatever deficits we've acquired in this life and whatever failings we've had and whatever traumas will somehow be embraced by divine love. And ultimately, we go on a journey of healing of our souls. Yeah. And... I because re- that is so 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 therapeutic and uh, so different than how we how most of us were raised. Yeah, um, it, it's it's very different. And I think if I mean if God is love, like we just said, that seems like a much more loving way to think about hell as opposed to just mm-hmm. cut off, thrown into a fire, and have a nice eternity. Sure. Yeah, I was just reading as you were talking, uh, I pulled a book off my shelf. You've heard of Keith Giles, I'm assuming? Oh, yeah. yeah, he wrote a book mm-hmm. called Jesus Undefeated, Condemning the False Doctrine of Eternal Torment. And in the book, mm-hmm. he has this quote uh, from the New Christian Encyclopedia. It says, in the first five or six centuries of Christianity, there were six known theological schools, of which mm-hmm. four were universalist. Mm-hmm. One accepted conditional immortality. One mm-hmm. taught endless punishment of the wicked. And he says, so let's summarize. There were six theological schools. <laughs> school was in a specific city. Four of them were universalist schools. One taught conditional immortality. One of the schools taught eternal suffering. And that school was in Rome, which mm-hmm. is quite eye-opening, right? Given what we know about right. the history of Rome, that exactly. the one school that taught eternal conscious torment was located in that place that just believed in tormenting everybody that didn't, you know, align with their values. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. And so, so yeah. So, you know, most Christians, we, we are so void of our own history 
and the history that we do know is so uh, so whitewashed, literally in many ways, um, that we don't we we sort of think what we believe just sort of dropped down from heaven. The Bible dropped down from heaven, yeah. And um, everything we believe can be traced back to the earliest days of the church, and that is not so. Yeah. Um, so these issues of hell, of atonement, and atonement took on a very different shape for the earliest followers of Christ. But yet, over time, those voices, uh, one voice basically took over. Right. And that's the voice that we're left with today. I think it's important, too, for our listeners, because I know everybody who's listening to this is in that process of rethinking a lot of this stuff. And then a lot of the pushback that we get is this idea, well, if God is so loving, you know, you're removing God's judgment. You're removing God's justice. But I think to your point, like what you just described, like you're not, you're not doing that at all. It's just a matter of rethinking what judgment is. Like judgment doesn't have to be a judge in a courtroom with a gavel, sending people to one place or the other. But judgment, mm-hmm. like you said, can be a hospital, um, you know, of judging of judging, looking at somebody who's sick and judging, you know, what's wrong, you know, what, what sure. needs to be fixed, what needs to be removed, whether it's on an operating table or, you know, whatever it might be to make this person whole again, uh, to give this person the best opportunity to live their life the best that it can be. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think this is going to be an eternal process for us. And yeah. it, it is just, it is just such a, a healing concept to, um, that, you know we're 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 on our eternal journey right now and if to me if i were to die right now i would take all my baggage and all my the unhealed parts of myself all of my sins or whatever you want to call them into eternity and i would not meet a stern judge on a throne who's going to be going over everything i've ever done mm. i would meet the lover of my soul and someone who wants to embrace me and heal me and guide me on a journey to that. And so uh, it really does take the fear out of it. It, But here is the issue. We assume that in order to make people live the way we want to, that if there's not fear involved, people will go off the deep end and -hmm. will just do whatever. So we sort of have to have hell hanging over people and these ideas of torment to keep people in line. And, you know, in my own experience, I've found the opposite to be true. Mm. I've found in my own life that all those years when I was preaching about hell and believing in a literal um, punishment of God and hell flames, I used to sin way more. If mm. we're adding up sins and taking a tally, I used to sin way more back then in the days that I preached about hell mm. than I do now Yeah, when I'm not even worried about hell. Mm. And so this whole idea that somehow we have to keep hell over people's heads to make them obey and walk the straight and narrow is, is a total fallacy. Yeah, hell is it's a very manipulative topic mm-hmm. i'm sure we could probably do a whole episode on on just that alone because like speaking you know you, you used to be a pastor and i used to be a pastor and i think that even though like maybe back then it was more 
I would say it was subconscious, but like, as I look back playing Monday morning quarterback over my time at the mm-hmm. church, like it was very easy to use the doctrine of hell or even like a toned down version of it, uh, just as a, as a, as a fear tactic to keep people coming back. Right. Because if, if you can kind of put the fear of God into somebody that you've got to come mm-hmm. to church, you've got to come to Bible study, you've got to be in your Bible, you've got, you've got to make sure that you're here. That also brings in the money. Right. And I'm sure, you know, as a pastor, oh, like absolutely. the pressure from church boards <laughs> and denominations yeah. in order to have money in the offering plates to pay the salaries, to keep the lights on, to keep the water on, like all the different things is, is immense. And it's so easy to fall back, I think, on that doctrine of hell in order to kind of force people into submission, for lack of a better phrase. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, also this whole idea that we, we are the only ones who can save the world. Yeah. Save people. Think right. what that does to your ego, Glenn. Yeah. I mean, think about it. Just from an ego perspective, if we are the only people with the truth, if we have the only people who have truly interpreted an ancient text correctly, and the weight of the world is on our shoulders to go save everybody who hasn't heard the gospel, not only is that pressure, but that strokes so much of the ego that, wow, I'm really important. Mm. You know, I'm central in God's plan to save the world. Mm. And without me, God can't really function. So not only is it a huge guilt trip, but it, it, it does something for our ego in a really sick and bad way. Yeah. I think it like really destroys, I guess is the best word, the idea of what it means to be chosen. Right. Because like we often look at, like think of like the people of the nation of Israel, they were the chosen Mm -hmm. people, but why were they chosen? They weren't chosen because they were special and they were going to go, to heaven and the whole rest of all the other nations were going to go to hell, but they were chosen so that they could be God's vessel to bring the blessings to the nations. And I think that right. like yeah. us as, you know, as, as followers of Christ, like if you want to call ourselves chosen, it's not chosen because we're so special and we have it and everybody else doesn't, but we, we have something that we can bring to the world and we can make sure. the world more like heaven right here mm-hmm. and right now. It's about today. It's not about later. And everybody's involved. It's not just about you and me being the, the, the great followers of Jesus that we are. Absolutely. You know, it's interesting too, and I'll just throw this out there. Um, this, this concept, if you go back into the Old Testament, there's not really much a development of any form of the afterlife in the Hebrew scriptures. Mm. Um, you know, if, if you read it, there's not really any talk of conscious torment and flame and mm. God judging people and sending people to hell. Uh, you know, there's this concept of Sheol that is mentioned quite a bit in the Psalms, but it's not really developed. It was just sort of this view of where the dead went in this sort of dark, murky place. Mm. And that, so this whole idea of hell started to develop uh, in the, really in the intertestamental uh, testamental period when Hebrew culture started interacting with Greek culture and, and their ideas uh, of hell and torment. 
and it became uh, much more developed in, in Hebrew thought by the time Jesus came around. And but that's a whole whole different thing <laughs> that we yeah. don't have time for. But yeah, so I mean, you know that, Glenn. It, there's really not this concept. Everything in the Old Testament was, if we're going to follow Yahweh. We're going to, uh, he's going to lead us to victory over our enemies now, mm. and we're going to have blessing now. And if we don't, bad things are going to happen to us now. Mm. So yeah. uh, there wasn't this huge development of whatever happens to the soul uh, when we die in the Hebrew scriptures. Mm. That would come later. Yeah. I think that's really important because that's a huge misunderstanding i mean i was never taught that that was a that was a brand new idea to me once i hit like rob bell's book love wins was just like wait mm-hmm. a minute holy sm-. this is like nothing that i was ever taught before but right. i was always taught that the old testament even the old testament was so clear about hell and about this place where people go uh, for whatever reason that they go there and it's it's it if, like you said it, it's not there and it wasn't it's something not, that was taught at in those all. days yeah Huh. I think too, another thing that I, I realized, I, I don't remember what book I was reading. It might've been Brad Jersak's book, uh, Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, but kind of the talk about like, even like the ancient rabbis that like they taught that they, there was teachings about hell. There was teachings about um, this place where the souls go, but it was always like a temporary place. And mm-hmm. the, the language that was used was that like there was, there was a back door of sorts to Gehenna, which is obviously you know, the Greek word for, mm-hmm. you know, for hell and all the places, but there was a back door to it. And it was there as a place of refinement. Like we said, not, not a place of torture and certainly not a place where someone goes for, for all of eternity. And I think that like that alone is a lot more Jesus like, like I, I can't, I can't read the gospels and come away with a picture of Jesus that sits by and does nothing while somebody is tortured for all of eternity. Like how, like how is that justice anyway? Like what kind of warped idea of justice is it where someone misbehaves or believes the wrong things for 50 or 80 years on earth, but then they're punished for trillions and trillions and trillions of years. Like not even the most exactly. it, it judge on is. earth. Yeah. And could possibly that, think that's that, just. Yeah. We, we turn God into a monster and you know, I, I'm thinking about the incarnation here, you know, this Mm. whole concept where God's holiness is defined in terms of who he can't be around Mm. uh, for eternity. And Mm. this really, for people who are strict Trinitarians, puts a division in the Trinity, because Mm. evidently the Son can do something that the Father can't. When the Son came to earth, he seemed to be totally fine being around regular people. Mm. He seemed to be totally fine being around sinners. He seemed to be totally fine eating with whoever. But somehow the father is not very keen on that sort of stuff. Mm. So we've got, we've got this inherent division in supposedly a Trinitarian God who is one and united and supposedly has no division within mm. its personhood. And that is a huge, huge, huge theological problem that this concept of hell and atonement brings up. Yeah. I think even on the the coattails of that would be, you know, Jesus obviously asks us to uh, love our enemies, to 
forgive our enemies just as he did on the cross, mm-hmm. right? Forgive them. They know not what they do. But that means that, you know, if you ask God, well, what do you do to your enemies? Well, that means that when they die and they get before <laughs> the throne, I don't forgive them. I, sen- I send them away. Right. And like, uh, again, <laughs> yeah, like, again, you have Jesus doing something that the Father doesn't do, and you have Jesus asking us to do something that not even God himself is willing to do, which, again, exactly. just creates this exactly. big cluster in my mind of, like, things that just don't make any sense. And I, I'll, I'll never forget this. The last paper I wrote at Dallas Seminary before I graduated it was a class on eschatology I took, and um, I, I had to write a paper about various views of hell in the early church and, and sort of my view, and I remember I ended the paper, I said I always side with what I viewed as the orthodox view, eternal conscious torment at that time, hmm. and I just made the comment, even at that time when I was a conservative evangelical pastor, I said, it doesn't seem right to me that the God that we've been taught about and supposedly loves our souls, we're going to have an eternity with the vast majority of people in darkness being tormented while the 1% look on in heavenly bliss. Yeah. And he sent my paper back. He passed me, <laughs> but he said, <laughs> we could, this was his comment. He said, we could not go by our feelings. We have to go by the scripture. Yeah. And it was like really pouring cold water on the love of God, I felt, you know? I get that a lot. I mean, it's, you know, so many times when I'll present, like, well, I'll be having a a discussion on Facebook if that could ever happen, but be having a online, (laughs) whatever you want to call it. And, you know, I'll, I'll throw these questions at people. And the response is always, you just have to, this is what the Bible says. You can't go by your questions or your feelings this is what it says. And then I'll push mm-hmm. it back and say, okay, well, that's what it says. But like, let's peel back the layer and talk about the context in which it was said, because like what the Bible says on the, on the surface, and this is a whole nother podcast we could do, but what the Bible says on the right. surface isn't necessarily what it means because we're disregarding the culture that it was written. Uh, you know, what was going on in the world when it was written what the people who were receiving the letter were going through when it was written, why it was written, mm-hmm. like all those different questions reveal so much that really can change what you're reading on the surface. I think sure. a lot of that goes into what this conversation about hell, because a lot of those hell passages that people pull from seem to say one thing on the surface, but if you look at it with all that other context in mind, it oftentimes says something drastically different. Absolutely. Mm. So last question for you, um, and then mm-hmm. I'll let you go. Uh, but let's go back to the, the, the Starbucks, the guy at the coffee asking you, mm-hmm. asking Pastor Jennifer some, some questions about, about hell. What is your advice for that person who is in that process of rethinking this stuff? They're deconstructing. They're scared to death because yeah. everybody around them has a very strong opinion about the way that it is. And they're like the one person who's asking questions. Like, what is your advice for that person having been there yourself? Yeah, I think the greatest fear in this is what if we're wrong? Yes. And, you know, that haunts me as well about myself. You know, what if I'm wrong about, you know, that being transgender is okay with God and Mm -hmm. my gender identity is really okay and it's who I was created to be? What what if I'm wrong? Mm. And um, 
I, that, that haunts me mm. sometimes. And I always come back that that's part of the trauma that was the religious trauma that was implanted in my brain. And it's always, what if you're wrong? God's going to get you. And only, only, only in the church have we created such a high price for being wrong about something is eternal damnation and hell. Mm. And maybe I am wrong. Maybe I'm wrong about myself. Maybe I'm wrong about deconstructing theology. Maybe I'm wrong about a lot of things. And I'm sure we we are all going to be wrong about some things in eternity. Mm-hmm. But the price of being wrong, the stakes are so high in the church, the price of being wrong is being burned to death forever. Yeah. Now, that way no one questions anything. Yeah. And we keep people in line. And so that to me, I have to just face that fear and let it go mm. and um, realize that and recognize it for what it is and call it and label it and name it and recognize it, that this is trauma. This is religious garbage from the past. And I, I need to just move on in deconstructing. And so I just go back to that verse per, that I talked about earlier, perfect love casts out fear. Yeah. And I, I want to share, I don't know if you've heard this, but I, I'll just share this in closing. You know, we know the story of Lazarus in the Bible, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And so many of these stories took on a greater life and they had mythology surrounding them. Uh, in the early church. You know, here's what, according to the mythology that developed around Lazarus after he died and Jesus rose him. Supposedly, what the early church fathers wrote about, that after Lazarus came back, he was struck dumb and could not speak because of all the horrors that he saw in hell. Mm. Now, to me, that is a way the church has taken a biblical text and story that is about nothing but hope, nothing but resurrection, nothing but joy and positivity, and turned it in a way to manipulate people and to cause them to fear. Mm. That somehow this man, Lazarus, that Jesus raised from the dead, as a result of seeing the horrors in hell, could not even speak for the rest of his life. Mm. so to me, that is sheer manipulation, and it has to be called that, and it has to be labeled and recognized. Mm-hmm. So I, I think the more we get out of fear-based religion, uh, the more toxic we see how it is, and the more harmful we see how it is. Yeah. And um, I, I just can't go back there. It, it would just be too traumatizing. So I realize all of our listeners are at different places on a journey. Um, but I would just strongly encourage anyone out there to not let fear, the fear of hell, the fear of being kicked out of the church, the fear of losing friends, um, the fear of rejection, hinder you from your own spiritual growth and journey. Amen to that. Yeah, as you were talking, I was, re- I was remembering um, a few years ago, I was in some some counseling and talking about with the counselor about some just traumatic things from childhood, whether it has to be church related or whatever. 
And, you know, the, the counselor said something very interesting. He said, whenever, whenever you sense that fear coming up, like we just talked about that fear of being wrong about hell and that fear of therefore being punished when, when you die or something like that, like those things come from a traumatizing experience when you were younger and that, mm-hmm. that person is still inside of you, like that young person who maybe heard that when I know for me, when I was in, my, in the fifth grade, is still living inside of me. And he said, what you need to learn to do is to speak to that young person inside of you as you would speak to your own daughter or your own son or whatever. And like, I picture my daughter now, Jordan, and she's three. Like if she ever came to me with that kind of fear, I would get down on my knee and I I would talk to her and I would remind her about God's love. I'd remind her about the things I always tell her that Jesus is always with her and that she's never alone. And know god is love and like all these different things and i think that we almost have to do that to ourselves, right like when, yeah. like when traumatizing things come up and these memories or these thoughts or these worries or these fears to just kind of slow down take a deep breath imagine that inner child inside of us and speak to him or her in the way that we would speak yeah. to our child yeah. absolutely absolutely yeah. that is that is so beautiful yes yeah. So good. Well, Jennifer, we are just about out of time, but this has been a great conversation. Uh, I could talk to you all day. So thanks. Thanks again. Yeah, I loved it. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, we'll be in touch Uh and we'll set up, we'll set up the next episode, whatever number that might be. (laughs) All right. Yeah. All right. So good. So good, Jennifer. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Glenn. Bye-bye.
Righteousness like a stream, like a stream. Just. In-